This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 163 of Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Anne Rice's 1976 novel, Interview with the Vampire. So James, how is your French? Because I hope it's better than mine, because we got some French words to pronounce today. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I took French, I took two years of French in, in high school and haven't flexed that muscle in, in like a decade, so... Okay, well, I'm going to rely on you then because that's two more years than I took. Uh, <laughs> some of these, some of these names, some of these uh, situations, we, we have, we have some French. Um, yeah, so this is Interview with the Vampire, uh, Anne Rice, which neither of us has, have ever read this novel prior to this mm-hmm. or any other Anne Rice novel, I assume. Um, right. And we, I've seen the movie, but you have not. Um, so this is truly like your first introduction to this. Um, this is, you know, a landmark vampire novel especially in like american uh genre fiction um so many people who created um you know twilight you look at uh, charlene harris with um uh the the sookie sacked house books um you know true blood um so many of the 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 vampire massive novels that came after this owe a lot to anne rice i think and the in these books um and this by the way still publishing today seems like has gone through cycles in her life where she would publish books and then not publish. But um, I think there's there's some Vampire Chronicles um, books that have come out in the last five years. So um, still still active and publishing. I wanted to start off, though, with sort of a spoiler free reaction. And I know this book's, you know, old now. It's 76. So it's been out for a long time. But like me and you, we're, we're fresh to it. So I assume we might have some listeners who are curious about it. Maybe have never read it. And want to know, like, is it worth dipping in and, and seeing what, what, you know, the all the hype is about? The, I, I mean, hype. I, it's been it's been an iconic book for years. So, you know, is it mm-hmm. something that's going, worth going back to and revisiting, uh, you know, going back to the 70s? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I found myself asking a lot of sort of like context questions when I was reading, like where, where this lies in sort of the pantheon of, of vampire stories, because I think it does... And it, and it felt to me like I knew this was an important story and I knew through like cultural osmosis, like a lot of the things that went on. And uh, but I mean, I, I was I found myself thinking about other things we've covered, like like recently we covered um, the old guard and the old mm-hmm. guard deals with immortals. And sure. what, what I think is interesting about dealing with immortals and something that I was wondering if it was a popular thing at the time is dealing with like the introspective look at what it means to be alive forever and see everyone around you die and only and be really lonely in the world except for these people who are also immortals with you who can understand you and what those relationships are like and what I found myself thinking is like I wonder if this was the beginning of a trend because I knew it was a massive novel for vampires because you think of like Hollywood at the time and you think of some some of the the, the classic Dracula stories and things like that and it's he's more of a monster Dracula is a monster and I think he's there to like terrify people and terrify audiences. And, and he's kind of like, he definitely sets up a lot of the things that we see in this with like 
sexuality and sensualness being associated with vampires. And I think this one was sort of hitting me in a way that I wasn't expecting in, in the fact that it's really this idea of like what it means to live forever, how how your philosophical outlook on life would change and like anything from your mortal life, how that would be affected by your immortal life and like how you would think of religion and relationships you had with people and uh, what what would be important and what would sort of fall away and, and seem unimportant. And it's also interesting to think of it in the context of like our own lives, like reading this book. It's like if you did become immortal, what's what are the things that would become irrelevant to you? And like, should you be worrying about those things on a day to day basis? I found myself kind of thinking about these things in my own life. Yeah. I mean, immortality is a fascinating subject. I think it always will be to, to us mortals. Um, and and Anne Rice absolutely is doing the thing you're talking about. And I think uh, I was reading, you know, back doing research for the author and for the book. And I was seeing that that was what she did differently. Not to say that no one was doing it, but the idea that she is the one who like did it and made it hugely popular and that was writing from the perspective of the vampire with the vampire as protagonist versus the vampire as the monster, like you were saying. And that sort of opens the door for so many other vampire stories we, we see where we're like, we're used to, to empathizing with the vampire and understanding their side of things and like the, the sort of tortured existence of the vampire. That's like super common these days. But that right. was something that she really popularized with these novels. And um, you touched a little bit on the monster element, too, because I wanted to give her credit in that her vampires are still pretty horrific at times. They do horrible mm -hmm. things. They kill many, many people. They're basically serial killers because they're killing multiple humans per night, um, some of them. And yeah. um, the book doesn't shy away from like that really dark element of just how violent their existence is. Um, so she does that, but then she also is able to make them sort of elegant and refined and um, have a sort of romance to them that I think a lot of people associate with vampires as well. So she's able to do both. Um, it's not like one gets completely lost for the other. Um, it, it's an interesting balance between those two elements. Definitely. And I mean, I think that represents our main character. This, the, the Louis. The Louis, like whether, whether it, the questions being asked, like, can you be a vampire and hold on to your humanity and hold on mm -hmm. to the things that made you human? Um, and that's that's honestly why I found Louis to be a fascinating character. Let's yeah, set, up, let's set mean, up a little bit of the, the just the setup of the novel is that there is an, a boy, he's just referred to as the boy um, throughout the book, who is interviewing a vampire who is Louis, who is telling him the story of his life, which is a 200-year saga um involving lots of stuff which we'll get into when we get into spoilers but um that's the setup is is the sort of framing device for the novel is an interviewer sitting down in a room with a vampire and the vampire is going to tell him his life story also it's the interviewer at the beginning seems like he kind of is on board with the vampire stuff but is maybe thinking it's all a ruse and then is quickly sort of bought in on it how did that framing device work for you and and did it was it the kind of thing you were expecting from this book this made me respect the choice to, to do an interview. Going in, I wasn't really appreciate. I wasn't thinking I was going to appreciate the inter interview framing device. But what it allows you to do is rather than sort of getting introspective from a first person view, you are still getting that. Um, but the, the vampire is interpreting, you know, it's not like 
omnipotent sort of narrating the the, mm-hmm. the vampire is telling you how he felt in certain situations yeah. throughout his it's life it's his story in his words right exactly his and so he's able to sort of like have perspective on things that he did early on as a vampire and things like that so i appreciated it for the fact that it's not just done for the novelty of it it's done and it, it allows you to like understand the character a little bit more because you can see what's actually happening and then hear how louis is describing it and sort of get a gauge of where he's at currently during the interview Mm -hmm. um kind of looking at everything in hindsight i thought it was really cool personally like i i I was on board with it i I thought that it was immediately engaging and it felt fresh to me even though again i know this is an older novel but um it, it, it was a fresh frame for a for a vampire story right like it's like you said it's not some sort of omniscient uh viewpoint it's it's this interview um situation and it was cool you know and um I don't know. I like that the boy is able to also be a bit of a audience stand-in, asking questions that might be, you know, raised in the reader's mind, reacting to things as the reader might. Um, but then we also get that fun, like, we, we can kind of get a, the perspective of being somewhere removed from the situation, too. Because, um, like, we maybe know more about vampires than than the interviewer does. There's also the fun play of, like, vampire tropes which one which ones exist in this universe and yeah. like the, the the interviewer asking them as as we probably would be asking with our knowledge of vampires yeah, yeah it's like okay so garlic uh crosses uh what, right. what, what, can you turn into mist like what's what's going on here yeah yeah <laughs> it was fun um yeah i mean it, and it's also cool because you get like i assume this is supposed to be somewhat contemporary for when the book came out so probably in the 70s um is when this interview is supposed to be taking place Yet the book itself is really mostly in the past, like way past. Mm-hmm. So you get that sort of um, lens of time stuff where you can look back at something 200 years ago and comment on it from the perspective of someone who is alive today, right. um, which is, a, I don't know, it's a cool novelty of like uh, this immortal character who was alive when the events, are, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s are taking place and then also is alive now to comment on it and, and compare, which is cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, things like you think about the time periods that they're talking about and it's like early America, the Civil War, like all these things that that could have been involved in the story and were technically going on. You know, you think like I think the 1800s, they're in Louisiana. And so Mm -hmm. it's like you would think where, you know, civil our Civil War things going on in the background of the story also. Um, I I just like any time that you go into like American history, some things that, you know, we learned a lot about growing up. you can kind of add that into like like add, add that as just layers that aren't even touched on into the story yeah so they're not really touched on but you're right i guess there could be stuff like that going on it seems like they're not they weren't very interested in like the politics of america uh they were right. very sort of uh focused on their lives and when i say their lives I, i'm talking about lestat which is a you know very famous vampire from these series um, pro- perhaps the most famous vampire um from the series um, yet is is actually not the main character of this book, which I thought was interesting too. Like it's a, I don't know, it's a little hmm. different. Like I feel like in the movie, it you know both vampires are are obviously front and center, but the book really felt much more tied to Louis because it's his story, he's telling it. So I don't know. In that way, I was surprised that Lestat wasn't a more prominent figure, even though he was, you know, probably the second most prominent figure in the book. Yeah, I think uh, that probably has to do with Casp 
partly um like mm-hmm. like the cast of the movie like you're like, you're like you're, i'm gonna use both of these actors to their full capacity and i i ca- i haven't even seen the movie but because i've seen clips and i've seen pictures and all this other stuff i kept imagining them as as brad pitt and tom cruise <laughs> the whole way through like i don't yeah. know why just their face young young brad pitt and young tom cruise yeah I, i'm excited to get to the film which we'll get into next week but um i was i was kind of glad that i didn't remember a ton of it actually because i was able to um, really dive into this novel as far as like the plot that happens. Um, but before we, I, I do want to get into some stuff about Anne Rice. I think it's actually really interesting. But before we do, I want to touch on one last thing. Um, as in the spoiler-free talk, what did you think of her prose? Because Anne Rice is sort of famous for having a certain style to her writing, um, and it is, it to me, it seems like the kind of thing that you're gonna have an opinion about one way or another. So, so how did you feel about her actual writing? style i mean i enjoyed it i i didn't think that there was anything off-putting about it i feel like that's what you're leading to right like some people don't like don't, don't enjoy it it felt like to me it felt like fitting for for a vampire novel it felt like part part romance part in in interesting ways and then like there are horror aspects and elements as well but the way that she actually writes uh i found to be like sort of i don't know she i think she was attempting to write in sort of a timeless way Something that would like fit along with the characters. Yeah. So so Louis is you know two hundred year old vampire and he talks and he speaks in sort of a old like kind of old timey way at times. Um, the pace of the novel is fairly slow. Um, there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of sort of philosophical musings that go on throughout. And and because of that, it has sort of a gothic feel um, throughout. And all of that, I think. Um, creates a prose that is almost more akin to something literary um, than than what um, maybe other modern sort of vampire novelists are doing. Um, although I'm sure there are a bunch of people who who tried to sort of crib this style. Um, let me read. I'm going to read the opening paragraph um, just because it will give the listener a taste. I see," said the vampire thoughtfully. And slowly he walked across the room towards the window. For a long time he stood there against the dim light from Diviserado Street and the passing beams of traffic. The boy could see the furnishings of the room more clearly now, the round oak table, the chairs. A wash basin hung on one wall with a mirror. He set his briefcase on the table and waited. So, so like even that opening paragraph, you can see it's taking its time, right? Like there's a yeah. lot of waiting. There's looking out the window and seeing beams of light. People are mm-hmm. moving slowly. Um, and I think it, it really fits with this character who is an immortal and has been around for 200 years. And is not in a hurry um, and, and wants to tell his story in his own time. Um, and because of that, if you maybe are more used to a faster paced style book, um, it could maybe feel slow to you. So, so I think that's, that's the thing, like, you know, if you're okay with that kind of prose, you're going to love this. And, and I think for me, um, I I don't know, I guess I'm, I I can, I can, I can enjoy different kinds of prose. Um, and I was able to, for me, this became a feature of the book, um, because I can appreciate this style of writing when done well. And I think it is done well here. Um, there's there's an appeal to that. There's a there's an eye for detail. There's a richness of the world that I like, and I I'm okay with it taking a little longer. Um, and you know the overloading of details 
first can be off-putting for some, but for me, I don't know, it just helped flesh out the world in a way that I enjoyed. And it actually became kind of a feature of the book, um, even though, like, I've read the first um, Sookie Stackhouse novel, and, like, I can tell you that Charlene Harris writes a very different style than this. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if, you're, if you read a bunch of other vampire novels, maybe this is this is very different to you. Yeah, so many things to comment on here. So I, I think it's about for me, when there's a slow burn novel or movie or whatever it is, I feel like there's a certain level. First of all, you need to be in the mood for it. But there's a certain level of immersion that you can get that I really Mm. enjoy. I like being like, I I like those moments of like in in, in a film, it's introspection, right? It's like looking out a window, looking at a beam of light. And in a, in a, in a book like this, it makes it feel very cinematic to me. It makes it feel very Mm. slow burn, taking its time deliberately. And then I want to compare this to Tom Clancy's novel that we just read, yeah. The Hunt for October, which was also slow paced, but in a different way. It was slow paced in a way yeah. that it was very technical and very, it was describing things to you that were like concrete in the real world. And it's not as like, it's not as interpretive. It's a Sounds lot of poetic. Like telling you. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, that that's where the difference comes as much as both of them were sort of slow burns in their own way. It's very mm-hmm. different when you have like something to chew on versus like just information being given to you, I think. Um, yeah. And that's like sort of I, that's why I enjoyed the slow burn of this of this story as well. And it, like you said, it really fits in with that, this sort of 200 year old vampire who's and the gothic. Like like I, I found myself mm-hmm. being like this is this is totally like the vampire stories that people would really latch on to and say, like, look at the 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 struggle and the strife that like like you can compare to your own life and and mm-hmm. like i just felt it to be very like i just kept i kept thinking like this is so like this is the blueprint for eventually what emo would be emo like goth and emo <laughs> would be sort of based on in my opinion like i remember like okay. going through an emo phase and being like i would have responded super well to this at that time so before i get into Anne rice uh the person let's first thank jamie d for commissioning this project uh she has been a patron for a long time and she is a part of our jukebox hero tier um where she is able to unlock um projects now that is actually a tier that we're going to be retiring next year um we're going to be putting more focus on patron-led polls i think um so there is still going to be an opportunity to sort sort of do communal commissioning um but we want to thank her for her support all this time and and for um hopefully she enjoys this coverage of of these Anne rice novels yeah i mean the, oh. these last two projects that we've done actually were, were both patron commissioned and and you know who's to say if we would have covered them without without their commissioning it so we do really yeah. appreciate it and like you know both of them have been a lot of fun and i'm really enjoying this one so far especially because like it's something i should have read or seen up to this yeah. point and now i'm getting to yeah, Tom Clancy and Anne Rice, I mean, massive names. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that we're touching on them. So let's talk a little bit about Anne Rice, the person. So she was born in 1941. Um, she is an American author of gothic fiction, Christian literature, and erotic literature. Um, best known for her Vampire Chronicles uh, books, which revolve around the central character of Lestat. She is one of the elite members of the, like, 100 million copies sold <laughs> club. Um, and we've talked about a few of them on this podcast, right? Like, other authors in this this club. And, um, you know, hugely successful, has made a massive empire. And um, when you're in that stratospheric level of sort of author stardom, um, you are affecting culture, right? Like, your work has had a, has had a massive reach. And um, I wanted to touch a little bit on what you were saying before. Um, her books 
are known for appealing to the LGBTQ plus community. And, um, and also I think like, you know, sort of the emo and all that stuff, right? Which, you know, some of them are, there's some overlap there. And it was because these characters are sort of outsiders are viewed as outsiders in society. And um, a lot of people read into this book um, as, as it being sort of an al- ongoing allegory about a gay romance um, between Lestat and Louis. Um, and th- there was there's just a lot there, I think, for people. And um, as we go, we can talk about her relationship to that, to her fandom. Is that kind of interesting, too? Because she has said that that's not actually what she intended. Oh, um, wow. but, but she actually is okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't her intention um, going right. in. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. But she was born in New Orleans um, and uh, was raised in a, a Catholic family, but initially became an agnostic as a young adult. Um, she was married and had a child, importantly, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer at four years old. Wow. And passed away. And she wrote this book shortly following that. And the character of Claudia is a direct, you know, reference or um, allegory for a lot of her feelings she was having about her daughter who died from cancer. So she went to like trauma and heartache and just like the worst tragedy you can go through, a young child, um, and captured it here in this book. And I think knowing that actually really influences the way I look at the book too, especially the character of Claudia. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like if you don't know that kind of a troubling character <laughs> in many ways, um, and, and, and it's still so, but I, it just, it helps a little bit, I think for me to realize that that is what the author was working through. Yeah, and it's not like, it's not its own character. It's not, it isn't her daughter, right? It's like, you no, know, right. this, it's the, the inspiration of the character. And then, you know, mm-hmm. she runs with it and does a lot of other stuff, but yeah. Um, I didn't know that. So that's, that's really, you know, tragic to hear. That's, that's absolutely brutal. So she would go on, um, to that, that would launch her career, right? Like after that. And, um, would go on to sell many books. Her, her husband, the, the, uh, the only person she was ever married to, um, actually died in 2002 from a brain tumor, brain cancer. So she, this is a person who's been through a lot of tragedy in her life. Um, she, has a had a journey with her faith um i i'm not going to pretend to understand all of it but she was early early on uh, an agnostic and then she found christianity um later in her life and actually wrote a couple of what are considered christian novels um and then has since come out and said that she is no longer a christian or no longer um i believe her in like organized christianity and and has sort of found she says that Christ is still important to her, but she um, doesn't believe in any of the sort of organized aspects of religion um, and doesn't follow any particular sect or whatever of, of religion. Um, and it, it's, it appears to have some sort of spirituality, but 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 distanced herself. And it seemed like a lot of what she didn't like uh, was a lot of the sort of political stuff going on with the church and um, social issues and things like that. Um, she really couldn't get on board with where the church was going. Um, and I don't know. I, I do know some Christians who are like that, whether or not they'd say that they're not, you know, consider themselves Christians or not, um, versus like, oh, I don't really subscribe to any one organized religion or what have you. I do know a lot of people like that. So 
Um, I just thought it was interesting that this is someone who clearly, and although, and then a recent, most recent interview, she actually said she's a secular humanist, um, which I tend to feel like I am myself as well. So I, I don't know. It's always interesting to see that this is somebody who has struggled a lot with these kind of questions, these existential questions. And um, I think you see that reflected in these characters in this book. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think, like you said, this was early on in her career and then she would find Christianity later and then go back yeah. and forth. But it seems like this has clearly always been the case. Like uh, if you look at the character of, of Louis, there's a lot of uh, struggling with with faith and, and what it means and if God is real and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was there was uh, a couple of parts in there that I was, you know, co-signing sort of <laughs> Louis take on um you know, what does it mean if, if there's no God and, and if we're all that's important, then, you know, we're, we're what makes sense of the world. And I don't know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff in there of, you know, him, it's, it's a lot of philosophy type stuff, which I can see turning some people off, but I don't know. I liked it because it lined up more with how I feel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being someone who, who did go to church and was, you know, raised in a religious household and then, and then mm-hmm. not identifying with any of that anymore, I definitely like sort of understood Louis sort of struggle with it and everything and and you know it's tough when you're when you're raising it and you're a kid to to like rewire your brain after you've been in something that i mean i would consider to be basically like it's so overwhelming when you're a child it seems so large and looming in your Mm -hmm. life and then moving away from it it's very interesting to see like louis struggle with that yeah so a little bit more about anne rice um she was actually born howard allen francis o'brien Born with the first name Howard, which um, apparently was a thing throughout her whole life. Like when she first went to like school, she was like, "Call me Anne," because it was just a name she liked. Um, yeah. It wasn't until later that she was able to legally change her name to Anne. Um, her mother, and this is another bit of tragedy that I that I didn't mention earlier. Her mother died when she was 15 years old um, from alcoholism, wow. and apparently she was. I saw an interview. She said she was sort of a bohemian figure who um, had a lot of problems, but was also very influential in her life early on. And um, after that, she ended up going to this like um, this school called St. Joseph's Academy. And um, she says, quote, it was something like out of Jane Eyre, a dilapidated, awful medieval type of place. I really hated it and wanted to leave. I felt betrayed by my father because her father sent her there uh mm-hmm. her and her sisters and later his, her father would remarry and they they were able to move out but it sounds like i mean that was really a struggle for her she went i assume this is the kind of place you like lived at yeah um kind of place so tough tough stuff early on in life she did have uh, another child she has a son christopher rice who actually is a best-selling author in his own right wow very interesting i'm always yeah it's always fascinating to me when you see someone like Anne Rice, someone whose the shadow would loom so large and then their kid is able to sort of carve their own path in that way. It's you see it with like film directors and stuff all the yeah. time. It's, it's really wild because it would yeah. seem so intimidating to try to like <laughs> be in that. Yeah. No. It's like either you go that way or you go, I mean, look at Stephen King's, you know, children. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like either you try and, and, and follow in their footsteps or you completely go another path. I think it's like the only ways you can really go. Um, so, so I, I did want to touch on one other thing in, in the mid in mid nineteen seventy nine, um, after they had Christopher, her and her son were admitted alcoholics, 
and they both quit drinking because they didn't want to give him a life similar to the one that she had growing up. Um, so I don't. I just wanted to give her sort of. I don't know. I I admire that sort of conviction, especially if you're you know that you're struggling with something, to sort yeah. of clean it up and say I don't want to. I don't want to do that. You know, it's I don't know. Tough. It's it, it, I also felt like. You know, that brings up something interesting because I was thinking about the nature of vampires and we'll get more into this, but there is a certain addiction quality to a vampire mm -hmm. as well, right? Mm -hmm. the, with the, the addiction to blood and, and some of that stuff. So I don't know, again, maybe something that she would struggle with. I'm not sure. What what year did you say that she was basically? 79. So, so what happened was um, after her daughter died, she went really hard into alcoholism. And um, also developed like depression, obviously, and then developed OCD. She talked about how she was really struggling with it for a while, um, like ex obsessive cleaning of the hands, um, things like that. Um, so struggled with a lot of mental illness, and um, had to had to go through a lot of therapy. That's what I was reading, um, but was able to come out on the other side of it, and was able to produce this novel that went on to become, you know, so influential. So another interesting thing to note that she. Uh, signed with an agent at a writer's conference and they would try and sell her book and it was rejected five times from major publishers and then uh, finally sold for $12,000 advance, which was pretty good for the time, um, but not, not you know, groundbreaking, obviously. And then I just think it's interesting that this is the kind of book that, and the kind of career that would go on to make that agent's career. You know what I mean? Like that agent, right. you know, was set for life, essentially, from being Anne Rice's agent. So that's the kind of, like, gem that these agents are searching for and, and was able to find here. And someone who, who had, had to face rejection early on in her career. Everybody, I feel like, has something that they have to overcome in this in these situations, and and you know some people, uh, you know personally and like as a, themselves, and then also within the industries. It sounds like you know, yeah, you she know, had a I, lot of both I think of those. <laughs> everybody has rejections, is is what I've heard. But some people get lucky and 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 just take off right away. But it's yeah. you know, if you have a bunch of rejections, I feel like it's also um, once something does click, anything can happen. You know. Like, like once, once one thing falls into place, like something like, um, uh, somebody taking a shot on Anne Rice turns into this like monumental career, obviously. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the game that, uh, you know, so many people are playing in this industry. Um, I think everybody hopes for, and it's like, it's like when, you know, wanting to be a writer, you know, I think it's always better to aim for mid list, <laughs> You know, like right. you can have dreams of being this, you know, runaway bestseller, but like it's so rare. Like aim for mid list, and then and then you hope that something you write hits. And you right. know that that's kind of I think a safe place to to set your aspirations. Um, and obviously, even that's kind of lofty, but it's more attainable. And I think a lot right. of agents and and publishers and stuff out there are also similarly looking for like I want to get I want to have some success with what I'm doing. I want to sell some copies. I want to make some money. Um, they're not out there going like, if I don't find the next Stephen King, if I don't find the next Anne Rice, JK Rowling, then I, you know, I don't know why I'm in this business. No, like those are lottery ticket style things. It just don't happen to everybody. Yeah. Anyway, I, I know we're running long and I do want to get into the plot, but before I do, there's also uh, something that I had been hearing about Anne Rice um, in writer circles. And that was that she really doesn't like fan fiction. Um, and was famously like she like sued one of the major websites, early websites in the internet, 
and fan fiction for her books was huge, as you can imagine. Um, there yeah. was a lot of slash fic. There's a lot of erotic fiction written um, about these characters. And um, she, 20 years ago, um, was a very vocal opponent of it. Now, I have seen that in recent years, she has softened on it and says now that she she while she still thinks that writers should be writing original stuff, um, she does see that there's a certain transitory period that you could be in where fan fiction could be useful to you as a writer. Now, I'm not saying I, I think that, but that's what Anne Rice says. Um, right. So I, I, I don't know. I was happy to see that she sort of has softened on that a little bit because I know a lot of people really love writing fan fiction. Um, it's not something I've ever really done, but I, I know lots of writers who find it to be a really nice um, avenue for their writing in, in a sort of low-pressure way to do it. Um, and I know there are even really successful authors who still write fan fiction occasionally under pen names. So um, I don't know. It just... Uh, a lot of writers out there have opinions about Anne Rice and some of them might be stemming from this. Cause I think she generated a lot of anger in the community when she came out. So, you know, vehemently against fan fiction. Yeah. I think it, it I think people used to be, and this isn't like, this is going to be a blanket statement. So prepare to, for me to be wrong multiple <laughs> times, <ready>. but uh, <laughs> here he goes. This back, back in that time, I feel like people were very precious with their work in, in a way that they felt like no one can write it besides me. No one understands the characters besides me, potentially. Um, and this idea of people going around writing with their own characters, like, I, I don't know what it was, but they wanted to keep them close to the chest. And then it seems like as time has gone on, people have understood that like, well, you know, people being this passionate about your work and wanting to write fan fiction on it is, is an extension of how much they love it. And mm -hmm. it's going to continue the popularity of your core, you know, novels that you're writing and it seems like a lot of people would be like over the moon to have fan fiction written about their their work at this yeah. point i agree and i think it is you know it's it was early on in the era of fan fiction at least on the internet and it was a lot of a lot of unknowns around it like what if this becomes more popular than my books you know right. like i feel like there was a lot of anxiety about it um and and maybe that was caught up a little bit in that attitude but i'm sure there were authors who you know, we're early on adopters of it and we're fine with it. So, yeah, again, probably shouldn't make blanket statements, but I think there is some some validity there. So let's mm -hmm. get into the actual plot of the novel. We've dillied on long enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have three chunks of plot I'm going to read and then we can talk about each one. So, a vampire named Louis de Pointe-du-Lac, don't know if I'm doing that any justice, um, tells his life story to a reporter referred to simply as The Boy. In 1791, Louis is a young plantation owner living in Louisiana. Distraught by the death of his pious brother, he seeks death in any way possible. Louis is approached by a vampire named Lestat de Liancourt, who desires Louis' company. Lestat turns Louis into a vampire, and the two become immortal companions. Lestat spends time feeding off slaves, while Louis, who finds it morally repugnant to murder humans to survive, feeds on animals. Louis and Lestat are forced to leave when Louis' slaves instigate an uprising. Louis sets his own plantation aflame. He and Lestat kill the slaves to keep word from spreading about vampires living in Louisiana. Gradually, Louis bends under Lestat's influence and begins feeding from humans. Escaping to, to New Orleans, Louis feeds off a five-year-old girl whom he finds next to the corpse of her mother. Louis begins to think of leaving Lestat and going his own way. Lestat then turns the girl into a vampire, a daughter named Claudia, for them, to give Louis a reason to stay. 
Claudia takes to killing easily, but she begins to realize over time that she can never grow up. Her mind matures into that of an intelligent, assertive woman, but her body remains that of a young girl. Okay, so that's the introduction of like the three main characters and and the events of the novel. What did you think? So I mean, I can't even there's so much to talk about. So many layers to dig into here. Mm-hmm. Um I guess I would start with the relationship between all three characters. So clearly there's a, a like a love that can only be understood if you're an immortal vampire between Lestat and Louis. And I think it's unhealthy obviously it seems like there's like a master almost like not servant but master sort of uh sub- subservient person uh yeah. r- role here and there's like a dominant and submissive person in the right in the exactly seems and like. then there's also like you know i think it brings into question like r- the idea of relationships like power dynamics and relationships and then also i don't know that you could say that it's not sexual but there is like a love that's like kind of not sexual it's like as far as we see there's it's just like a love that's like so un- that's really it's hard that's, to describe <laughs> that's one of the really interesting bits that i that i i, I was surprised that sh- she was able to maintain sort of plausible deniability the whole time like are these vampires fucking i don't know right yeah you, <laughs> it's I, I never really tell. said <laughs> um it, it, that, that that I could find right like I, unless I missed it it was they would they would mention like being lovers but it was like are they mentioning like being lovers in that way or are they being lovers right. in that they loved each other right I don't know and they also like when he talked about actually becoming a vampire and him sucking his blood and then like uh sucking oh, yeah. the vampire's blood and how sexual that felt and like very Super like sexual. erotic yeah yeah it was like so, on the nose like this is almost a sex act and I, I think throughout that was kind of the implication I was getting is that sex for vampires has been replaced by the sort of the sucking of the blood um, right. and the intimacy there. And that moment where Lestat makes Louis into a vampire is extremely sexual, even though they're not having sex, obviously, but they are exchanging fluids and feeling each other's right. hearts beat and, and, and having this really intimate connection. Um, and, and similarly, you know, with Claudia... Um, which brings all sorts of troubling things into play. Right. Um, there, there, a lot of this same stuff goes down. And I mean, that brings in the question of like vampires. And so it's like, there's clear, these people that they go and feed on, they're just raping them then basically, right? Because Oh, for sure. Replacing... I mean, it's against their will almost, almost always, right? You know, it's, there's no consent there. Um, and, and that, I mean, that definitely brings up this troubling power dynamic throughout the entire book. But like, I think it's on, purpose um is my reading of it at least is like that's what that's what's evil about these creatures right like they they become so aloof and sort of removed from humanity that they start to view humans as just food now louis is sort of an exception to that and he struggles with it throughout um so he he's kind of a nice he gives you a nice inroad as as a human reading the book you're like okay at least he feels bad but like so many of the other vampires don't seem to feel bad at all and we see them just horrifically killing just tons and tons of people um and it's because they don't view them like they almost and i was thinking of it as almost like um you know you might look at a insect and say you know oh he only lives a week anyway and so it, what does it matter in the ski right. in the in this in, compared to my life right like and that's how it feels like these vampires view humans it's like oh they live such brief lives anyway it's almost better if i just end it now it'll save them later suffering right like there's so many ways that they excuse their behavior 
uh, throughout. And a lot of it is very monstrous, and it's told in a way that is like, Louis slightly condemns it, but I think we, the reader, are supposed to realize that it's way worse than he's really even saying it is. Yeah. I mean, we're so close to these characters because we're getting their his point of view and, and like hearing his story. Um, but yeah, the grayness of, of Louis continues to be probably the most interesting thing in the story to me because he talks about how he didn't understand humanity until he became a vampire. Like he didn't understand the beauty of humanity. He didn't understand like how intense art was and, and what life meant and all these things until he became a vampire, which is such a double-edged sword because then he's also f- like forced and like drawn to feed on humanity and then he feels bad about it and uh there's this whole idea of like can he be can he keep his human like i said before can he keep his humanity while being this monster and 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 uh that's like what's explored in the story i would say mostly yeah well and him being a slave owner actually kind of works well for this attitude because he's you know convinced of other people being lesser and there's a moment where he sort of says like ah in my my youth i i viewed the slaves a certain way but i really felt like it wasn't engaged with as much as it could have been and probably should have been um there was also some language in there that i took a little bit of umbrage with where it was sort of given as a um statement of fact that the slaves um were more connected to the supernatural and therefore more believing. And that's why they were able to see them as vampires. Right. Specifically because they were like, this was, this was a tough part to read, but specifically because they were freshly from Africa. They were Africans that hadn't been Americanized yet. So they were very connected to this like spiritual, like, like it was very troubling. And like, I, I can see where you would go, like how that could come about as you're thinking about it. But like, it is also, racist right like it just is no, you know it's like yeah. it's it's the problem that we've seen so, in so much other fiction where black people are considered magical right and considered closer to the supernatural and it's othering it's saying that they exactly. are somehow different than us white people um and yeah i don't know it, it, you know book written in the 70s and it's talking about slaves um it, i thought it was handled okay that's about as good yeah. as i can give it and that's me a white dude reading it so take that with right. a huge grain of salt Definitely. The story, they, they it, like you said, it doesn't, they don't even really engage with it. It's just like, yeah. this is the thing that was going on at the time. So it's talked about. I would have liked um, to see some more contrition from Louis about being a slave owner, but honestly, it felt like it was kind of beside the point. Yeah, it wasn't even about that, really. Which, it's like, which, that doesn't you know, even hold a candle to all the people I killed. So let's talk about that. It is tough, like, so, when you think about how monstrous these characters are, of like, the idea of liking them is kind of troubling but right. i don't know you're also like you're it's like people who who find reading about serial killers interesting listening to podcasts about serial killers you know like even even these figures that do horrific things um there's some there's interest there and um i feel like they tell it it tells us something about the darker impulses of ourselves um and you know seeing the sort of evil that humanity is capable of um I don't know. There's, there's, there is something there of interest for people. And like, I think there's a reason that dark fiction like this does well. Um, and why people will continue to be drawn to characters like this. Even when you, if you, you know, we talk about them, it sounds like it's like, why would you want to read about this character? He sounds absolutely horrible. Right. And he mostly is, (laughs) but he feels kind of bad about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the main thing I think I was going to get at is with Louis, you can at least see that he has, 
doubts about it his he's struggling with it these all, all of these things at least at, not in the slavery in the in the like killing people and and sucking their blood and all that other stuff um he has problems with it and that's sort of why people can still go along with what he's he's doing and sort of like the character still because i think you can walk away from the story having been like i like this character look how tortured he is maybe some of it is self-inflicted um, but it's still he's still engaging with it, whereas someone like Lestat is a character that doesn't, from a perspective that we get from Louis' perspective, seems like sort of just a monster w- wanting yeah. to do everything that life can, all the pleasures of life for himself does, without a second thought. It seemed to me like there is a lot more to tell about Lestat, so I can see why this character would go on to be really central, because I didn't quite understand why he was the way he was. And exactly. Think, yeah, a lot of his backstory is completely mysterious. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems much less of the sort of like, I don't know, the kind of vampire that Louis is, right? Like he, he, it, it seems to care a lot less about the people he kills. He's a lot more monstrous in many ways. Um, and Louis is very frustrated with him, you know, and especially recounting this story to the boy, right? Like I wish early on I had done things differently. He could have done things differently. He didn't have to do it this way. Um, though he had a lot of criticisms about him, um, as like, uh, his sire as a vampire, right. And, uh, how he handled a lot of it. Um, and, and in many ways, you know, Lestat deeply flawed, right? Like, um, not, not sort of completely in control of his own emotion and his own desires, like in many ways, way more out of control than Louis was. Yeah. I do have a comparison to make that I think will kind of spoil the end. So if like, I would say like skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want to hear that, but I do need to say it here. Mm. So basically like the comparison is, I think that Lestat and, and Louis represent two sides of the vampire coin, right? So Louis represents still, he's, he's someone who is no longer human and like still yearns for humanity and I think that Lestat is, a, is we can still see flashes of humanity, even though he doesn't want to believe it. Um, and I think that he, we see it like with his father and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, at the, when his father's dying, he's like, he, he like shows some, some humanity still. Um, and what, what we see is the progression for Louis throughout the story to become more like Lestat. So like you said, there might be some story for Lestat where he's still connected to humanity but then loses everything and loses his humanity, becomes who who we see in this novel, who Louis becomes near near the end of this novel, where he doesn't even want to engage with the fact that he's still, he thinks that he's completely disconnected from humanity, but he's still, in the back of our minds, we know like, well, he's doing this interview. He's, you know, like, why mm-hmm. would he be doing the interview? Like all of these reasons to still be connected to humanity as much as we feel like he's lost it. So like they kind of represent two different stages in like the vampire life cycle, maybe. Yeah. No, I can see that. And and I think we got to bring in Claudia to this discussion a little bit, too, because yeah. she's the other um, really central character to this book. And um, a tragic story, um, Louis, in one of his weaker moments, um, feeds on her. And then um, Lestat, after, like, there's one of the more, like, memorable scenes early on in the book where he's having this, like, he's ha- he has multiple women over um and he's talking to louis and he like he's killing them they're i think they're prostitutes and he's being like overtly cruel and like terrifying the woman he's killing and it's like upsetting louis and it really is demonstrating the difference between them um and then uh, but also like that's one of the, the, the scarier moments for me as far as like uh, finding louis scare or, sorry finding lestat scary 
was because of the way he was so casually inflicting cruelty and, and, and terror onto people. And it really showed the way he considers humans to be essentially just food for him. Um, and, and, and more than that though, cause he like delighted in, in frightening them. Like, yeah, I don't know. There was something really dark there. And then he makes Claudia into a vampire in an act that is clearly really fucked up. Like, you know, when you, when it happens, like, you know, like this is bad news. Right. And I really like the way it was explored in that she, of course, you know that she's going to grow up and, and sort of have a adult's mind in this five-year-old's body. So she's five in the book, which is, I think is significantly younger than she is in the, in the movie. If I remember correctly. Um, I, I felt like there's a lot of stuff that I kind of knew where they were going to go with that, and they do. But then there's a lot that um, was 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 a like really interesting uh, place I wasn't thinking about, and that was the idea that um, when she became a vampire, she did not have this prior life to draw on. So in some ways, she was a lot more um, sort of feral vampire who didn't have memories of humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that was, I don't know, just like there was a certain immaturity to her even as she got older and it was the immaturity came from her lack of a human life versus her lack of years on the planet. Um, so uh, there's a really interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, it's almost like if you took a child and then they were like raised by wolves in the in the woods or something. You know what I mean? Like how yeah. your feral nature would become sort of the only nature you know. And because, because she's she, killing people every night from right. from that point on, like Lestat's right. taking her out to feed on people. And it and not to mention yeah, like before she even knows what it means to be dead. Right? She has right. no concept. The other thing is is the 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 two people who are raising her, like we've talked about, are sort of two different kinds of vampires. Yeah. So so she's that that's her only influence at this point, and yeah, it's it's super troubling and and like a bold move to do in the story. I don't think that I would have been brave enough to do because of all of the. I think this things. is honestly one of the reasons that you might have seen some of these publishers turn this book down because this yeah. feels like really dicey, really uh, tricky territory, right? And and um, you can see a lot of people getting really angry about it or really bouncing off of it because of it. Um, There's also like yeah. relationship love almost sexual again like nature going on with a child it's hinted at that maybe it is i I don't know it's very like i said troubling it seems like they created a child and then it's also troubling because it's she grows 65 years pass and she's 65 in a in a child's body and Mm -hmm. all the the pleasures of life and like the the idea of growing and becoming a woman she is a woman in in her in her mind but like they've taken away what what she's had taken away from her is the ability to ever sort of grow and and become yeah, a have fully an adult body, body. <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah very crazy stuff it's you know it's tragic and she she really lives a tragic life and um again this is one where reading about the inspiration for this character and what happened to Anne rice's daughter um actually really helped me understand what she was trying to do with this with yeah, because I didn't know that, and I felt like it was like like pedophile stuff going on. You know, yeah. I felt like that to me. It like feels it that way like at times. Teetering on um, it sometimes, but and, and I think she is playing with that in some way. You know, it really feels like you know, there's some fiction um, and some stories like to dance along an edge of making us uncomfortable, challenging us in ways, um, and 
I think this book is doing that, right? Like it is, right. it is at the edge of like what is considered completely taboo. Like don't talk right. about subjects. Well, then um, it's bringing in th- this idea of like, do can we as mortals understand love and sexuality in immortals and stuff? Yeah. And like that's the world that she wants you to engage with. It's just like like you said, like I can see why publishers would have pushed back against it. Maybe some. Yeah. Anyway, and I don't know the answer to these questions. I'm just saying that that's, that's in the book, and you're going right. to struggle with it when you read it, <laughs> if you do right. read this book. Like, it's yeah. it's going to come up, and it's going to be something. So, you know, if you really don't want to engage with that, I completely get it. You know, be aware that, that is in there. Um, okay, let's move into the next chunk of the novel, and then we can, we can talk more about these characters. Claudia blames Lestat for her condition, and after 60 years of living with him, hatches a plot to kill Lestat by poisoning him and cutting his throat. Claudia and Louis then dump his body into a nearby swamp. As Louis and Claudia prepare to flee to Europe, Lestat appears, having recovered from Claudia's attack, and attacks them in return. Louis sets fire to their home and barely escapes with Claudia, leaving a furious Lestat to be consumed by the flames. Arriving in Europe, Louis and Claudia seek out more of their kind. They do indeed encounter vampires, but these vampires appear to be nothing more than mindless animated corpses. It is only when they reach Paris that they encounter vampires like themselves, specifically the 400-year-old vampire Armand and his coven. Inhabiting an ancient theater, Armand and his vampire coven disguise themselves as humans and feed on live, terrified humans and mock plays before a live human audience. Claudia is repulsed by these vampires and what she considers to be their cheap theatrics, but Louis and Armand are drawn to each other. Okay, so that's the next big chunk. Let's back up a little bit to the confrontation between Claudia and Lestat, um, where she tries to kill him. Yeah, we should definitely set up the reason why they dislike Lestat is that he's sort of the all instincts vampire like I've been talking about. Like he, mm-hmm. he represents like there's not like Louis doesn't respond well to the fact that he's like not showing class with the way he's doing things. He's not refined in the ways that we've talked about as a vampire could be. Um, and that's sort of what Louis's expectation of a vampire was when he became a vampire. And then Claudia, yeah, Claudia just doesn't really like his style of vampiring either. So yeah. eventually it comes to a head when it's like clear that he he has power over them and doesn't well, want... Also, also, it seems like they both believe that he is deliberately re- like withholding information about what it means to be a vampire from them. And Claudia really wants to know and wants to, like, go find other vampires and find out more about what it means to be a vampire. And uh, Lestat is not interested in that at all. And he kind of tells them, like, you you know, you don't you don't need to know. Um, And they get both. They both get frustrated with that. Louis doesn't necessarily want to do this until she brings it about. Claudia is the reason for this happening. Other I think without Claudia. uh, I mean, although Louis wanted to leave before Claudia, but once Claudia came into the picture, uh, there was no sort of idea of doing this until Claudia was like, I want to go yeah. figure out what's going on. Because once she found out her how she came about, she wanted to know m- more and more and more, as you've said, and Lestat was withholding everything. Well, and Louis feels incredibly guilty about Claudia's situation. And mm-hmm. it feels like he is sort of willing to do almost anything um, to try and make it up to her. And if yeah. that's, you know do you know kill the stat he ends up being on board with it he doesn't like ever really agree with it and he's he drags his feet a ton but -hmm. he also doesn't prevent it from happening it's funny because like he he addresses it near the end of the novel 
how he lived he feels like he lived too passively like he feels like he uh mm-hmm. in all these situations could have been more taken more of an active role and like taken hold of his life and done different things or his afterlife his vampire life and mm-hmm. uh a lot of these things cascade that lead to events that he eventually regrets so it's like these moments where he's like dragging his feet and not doing anything he could have taken a more active role in not killing Lestat or killing him more so that they knew yeah. he was dead that kind of, you know yeah. so that he actually died because he doesn't die <laughs> right like, he doesn't actually, die here he comes back uh he he has survived you know being thrown in the river and having his throat slit or whatever because that doesn't kill a vampire um and then uh the, another confrontation goes down and they end up burning down the plantation and seemingly lestat is dead again although well we learn later he is not here but he uh suffers significant injury it seems like um, right. And then we get the trip to to Europe, which um, I actually thought was really interesting. And I don't remember this part in the movie. I assume something like this does happen, but mm-hmm. um, I'll be curious to see if I've, it's just something I've like wiped from my mind. But um, going around to these like small towns and um, mm-hmm. the the sort of monsters in the night, and and um, going to this like monastery and encountering this revenant vampire. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I thought this was like uh, really interesting. Like gothic horror i don't know like i kept expecting them to run into van helsing or something <laughs> exactly yeah i think that's what that's what rice is going for here she wants to yeah. she wanted to engage with the the known vampires the monster vampires that were mm-hmm. just like the in the countryside terrorizing villages and all that sort of thing um and especially when they're like mindless and have no goals or anything like that that's that's mm-hmm. like what i think she was engaging with with her vampires who were the introspective wanting to know their nature that kind of thing yeah um, and it is, there is sort of an explanation given of like, these are people who are made into vampires and then buried and mm-hmm. then spend an unknown amount of time just like being driven mad by their hunger mm-hmm. and also like decaying in the ground and stuff. And I, and I guess that's how you, they end up becoming this more revenant figure who is more mindless. Um, although it's not like clearly explained, that's just a theory that's proposed by I think right. Claudia at one point. Oh, so Armand. So, Let's talk about yeah, Armand's and then because, and then they go to Paris. Yeah, and then they find the the kind of vampires they're looking for this this like sort of ancient vampire, and then uh, this brings up interesting. We were talking about the religious aspects before. This brings up a lot of religion um, with like Louis finally coming to grips with the fact that like in this world, this like th- this vampire has seen no evidence of like God or Satan or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it kind of shatters Louis's world, even though he didn't really believe it. He sort of. He was had a, an attachment to it still, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, there's this really interesting scene between them, um, where where he first meets Armand, and he's immediately sort of like drawn to this person, and it seems like he has uh, Armand is, is has sort of a, a mesmerizing power over people, mm-hmm. and he's able to use that on Claudia too. Um, but they have this really strong connection, and I kept expecting it to be more nefarious than it was but it actually seems to be pretty genuine Mm -hmm. um that they are sort of drawn to each other and um and then yeah you had this coven you had this theater um santiago who like mimics louis when he finds him in the in the like alleyway and and, in this funny way where he's like mirroring him completely and and um i don't know you know this 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 sort of vampire coven and their their interactions with each other and putting on the theatrics this is a lot more of like what i think 
I assumed an Anne Rice novel was going to be like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know for whatever reason. Like this is very. This was what I was expecting, right. um, and it's it is present, but it's like it's a smaller part of the novel than I was expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting about this theater is that it's like an all human audience, and yeah. you have like this these performances, and the audience loves it, and they're not really realizing that they're actually witnessing people like being fed on. But it shows that like they're in. I think there's a commentary being made on like humans loving violence even if they're not understanding it fully like like uh as as monstrous as as monstrous as like these these vampires have been shown to be the humans even though it's fake to them love it you know like they're inter- they, they love it in the same way that like some of these uh, like like older vampires who love killing these people love it um i don't know just really interesting because armand represents like this like he, basically the oldest vampire and he uh is interested in Louis because Louis is still conflicted about humanity in ways because it like keeps them young and in, in, in like it keeps them connected to humanity and something about that keeps a vampire spirit alive or something it keeps mm-hmm. them engaged um, and so Armand is interested in Louis because of that in a in a way yeah Did you, and then you know as as events play out when he starts to lose his humanity Armand is less interested in him so right yeah no you're right it was like he was this path to like. Because Armand had sort of become really detached from his humanity, and and Louis represented a, a path to that. Um, I I was struck by like how. I wonder if it was accidental. It had to have been accidental, but like, she's creating a such a rife world for cosplay and culture to rise up around her books with this coven and these theatrics and it felt very it almost felt like you know like a bondage party or something that you, you know you'd see or read about or whatever or go to <laughs> um it, it was like it felt like it was so incredibly sexual while not being directly sexual um everybody's so stylish yet so um dangerous and um you know these like extravagant men with their like you know rippling muscles and 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 sort of almost like a romantic romance style heroes right and then you have all these women and um i don't know it's just like there's something about it that i was like did she just accidentally create something that was going to be so engaging for so many people because i feel like this became a huge part of like vampire culture goth culture um people who who you know live their lives uh, sort of embodying this style at least right yeah I, I mean you mentioned that like her mother lived like a bohemian lifestyle right so maybe this mm-hmm. is her like engaging with that i don't know yeah. I, I, yeah i don't think she sought out like set out to create anything like that people would be imitating necessarily but i think that that's always the case right when something mm-hmm. really hits hits like society in this way and changes culture i feel like it's almost accidental most of the time yeah i mean i've heard people say that like it's that's why it's important to describe what your characters are wearing (laughs) which is interesting because i'm someone who like when i write i tend to not really focus on clothing as i just don't find it very interesting um and i always kind of feel like yeah you'll you'll supply the clothing in your mind you know you don't really have to but like there's something to be said for like hey if you want people to ever cosplay a character make sure you describe how they look (laughs) otherwise they'll you know won't have anywhere to go um I don't know. It's fun. Um, anyway, yeah, Armand. Um, what did you think of Armand as as a sort of a character? I thought 
I don't know if I was like completely on board with their connection when they, when he sort yeah, of yeah agreed. It, it totally felt nefarious the whole way. Like you were saying, it yeah, felt. I kept I, expecting I was like, it to be in, turned on him. Yeah, it's gonna be like he's and like realistically, he it is ulterior motives. It is kind of like him selfishly wanting to keep himself young and engaged in culture and society because of yeah. Louis. But he's not like lying to him. Right. which is what I thought was happening, right? Right, right. Yeah, you almost felt like... Well, and, and then the other thing comes with the, with the following scene where, like, he allows some stuff to happen um, when he could... You know, Armand has... Let's, he, he let's also, get into the next part yeah, of the plot he's so also, we can talk about that. I would just say he's also passive in, in ways that he could have not been and would have changed outcomes of, of the story. Okay, so let's get into this final chunk of plot and then we can really wrap this up. So convinced that Louis will leave her for Armand, Claudia convinces Louis to turn a Parisian doll maker, Madeline, into a vampire to serve as a replacement companion. Louis, Madeline, and Claudia live together for a brief time until all three are abducted by Armand's coven. Lestat arrives, having survived the fire in New Orleans. His accusations against Louis and Claudia result in Louis being locked in a coffin to starve, while Claudia and Madeline are locked in an open courtyard. Armand arrives and releases Louis from the coffin, but Madeline and Claudia are burned to death by the rising sun. A devastated Louis finds their ashen remains. Louis returns to the theater the following night, burning it to the ground and killing all the vampires inside, leaving with Armand. Together, the two travel across Europe for several years, but Louis never fully recovers from Claudia's death, and the emotional connection between himself and Armand quickly dissolves. Tired of the old world, Louis returns to New Orleans in the early 20th century. Telling the boy of one last encounter with Lestat in New Orleans in the 1920s, Louis ends his tale. After 200 years, he is weary of immortality and all, of all the pain and suffering of wit to which he has had to bear witness. The boy, however, seeing only the great powers granted to a vampire, begs to be made into a vampire himself. Angry that his interviewer learned nothing from his story, Louis refuses, attacking the boy and vanishing without a trace. The boy then leaves to track down Lestat in hopes that he can give him immortality. Okay, so that's the rest of the novel. Now, anything's fair game. You were touching on what happens with Armand at the at the theater, so right. Go ahead. So the the whole setup is if you kill a vampire, the other vampires will come after you, and yeah, will it's like the one you. crime you can commit right. that vampires. It's ta you can't do. Since Lestat returns, then the other vampires come after everybody who tried to kill him, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when Lestat could have, you know, stepped in in a way. I, I know it's like a rule, but they didn't kill Lestat. They attempted to. So, like, yeah. they, they ended up attacking them, which then led to Claudia and um, Madeline dying. And that leads to Lestat becoming unhappy because eventually Louis, that, that, I mean, Louis loses everything here and is yeah. completely devastated as a totally different character and um and armand eventually like leaves basically they're not interested in each other anymore there's nothing there's no spark there's no life there but after a while though they, they go while. around together for a while yeah that's true um yeah and there is a sort of a secret being withheld here because armand actually was integral in the burning of claudia right. and yeah. madeline um and he lies about that but then when he, by the time he reveals it to louis louis like kind of already knows or doesn't care yeah, exactly it's too late yeah. to do anything about it. He just doesn't even engage with it. There's there's uh, a couple of things I want to touch on here. You were talking about the relationship of Anne Rice to Claudia's character, and I couldn't help but when you were just reading that summary, think about Madeline and what she represented mm -hmm. to like a, a mother and child sort of vampire let, duo. Let me give you one more detail that'll even further that. 
uh, Anne Rice is known for having an extensive porcelain doll collection. There you go. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, you know, this is a doll maker who, uh, you know, Claudia is repeatedly described as being sort of a immortal doll, right? Mm-hmm. Like she she will never grow out of this body. And Madeline is a doll maker who lost a child, right? Who um, is granted immortality to become this immortal partner of Claudia's, but then is killed immediately. Um, and ends up dying with Claudia. Right. And then you got to think of Anne Rice's sort of writing this into the story with regards to immortality, being with Claudia forever, being with, you know, just like the, the tragedy of what, she, what Anne Rice has gone through, like how, how much she must wish that she could spend, you know, eternity with with that child that right. she lost and all that. It's just well, and I think also seeing the, I don't know, the darkness of like what would immortality mean and like, you know, she's she she lives on in my mind, but she always lives on as a five year old. Like that's my only memory of her is that age. So I'll never get to see what she would become. Yeah. Um. And and so like you know, there's a lot there's a lot in there. And um, I watched a video where Anne Rice was giving sort of writing advice, and one of the bits that I really liked was her talking about how, um, she believes that you should write write to pain, find the thing that that um you know, hurts and to, and to try and, and work it out through, through your writing. Um, but also write to pleasure. She said, like, find the things that excite you, find the things that, um, are pleasurable and write to them as well. And I think Mm -hmm. we see both here in in the book. Um, but when I heard her say that, I, I was thinking of these moments and how that, you know, her decision to do that is one of the things that I think helped make her career what it is. Yeah. It, it just that that makes a lot of sense like you know everybody as far as i've been ever been taught is just like like le- you have something that's special to you that you're passionate about that that you can speak about that no one else can and although that might necess- that might not necessarily always be the case um there is something that you do know whether it's a small thing or a big thing if, whether it's an idea for a mm-hmm. whole book or whether it's just a section one little one little line or something like that there's something that you know as like your sort of and it's something that like you want to get out. And I feel like you, you have to sort of lean into that stuff. And as, as much as it probably hurt Anne Rice to write this, it's probably also a form of therapy. I would, yeah, you know, and, and I'm just assuming, obviously. Yeah, she, she was able to come through this period successfully. And you have to, I like to think that, that writing this book helped, helped her work through these emotions. Because, I mean, something like that, it sent her in a downward spiral for years. And um, I don't know, it's, it's really incredible that she was able to even come out of that come out of it at all much less with the success that she had so in ter- in the actual story in terms of things that mm-hmm. happened they they burned down madeline's uh doll shop and they talk about the fire purifying claudia specifically is talking about like the fire purifying and, and like how she loves the burning and louis louis doesn't like see the burning as the same thing and she she's sort yeah. of like optimistic on it and he's not it's just destruction right destruction that's what it was and then yeah. that would go on to so, sort of inform the next few things that would happen in the novel with like burning uh burning of claudia and madeline the burning down of the theater uh by mm. by louis and then you know i, I think like like the, the who ultimately was right in that was it a purifying for claudia because she could never fully live a full life that she wanted mm-hmm. to, or was it the destruction of everything for Louis? You know, those two. Yeah. So, so the final uh, paragraph of the last, 
or not the last part, the second to last part before the sort of denouement uh, of um, returning to New Orleans um, touches on this. Um, and I actually did want to read that. Before we do, real quick, I just wanted to say that the uh, the burning down of the theater and Louis beheading Santiago mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Like, that was a yeah. pretty cool moment of him just like, he was this, you know, I don't know, <laughs> fucking spirit of vengeance. It's the first time we see him like actively doing something. I was like, fuck yeah, finally doing something, Louis. Um, he he is like, yeah, not having any of it. He he had just learned that like killing a vampire is the worst thing you can do, and so he's like, well, fuck it, I'm gonna kill all of them. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, and, he um, lost. That's like the like you said, it's vengeance. He lost everything. It's all over for him. And like we see going forward, he doesn't. He also yeah. doesn't care if there are humans in the building. Um, he doesn't care about anything, which is showing that like he's lost that humanity that he struggled with the whole story. Um, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about too, is this this sketch artist thing that happens where he ends up killing that artist for the sketch of himself, um, uh, yeah. and how that how that also shows the loss of humanity. He killed someone for the sketch, and he was so confronted by it, he was staring at it for like a day or something, and then going forward, they go into the Louvre and. They could, he's looking at the art and he can appreciate it for the effort that it took. He can appreciate it for, for the art that it is and what it represents, but he can't, he can't attach with it because he doesn't any, he feels like he doesn't any longer rep, like connect with human the humanity that created the art. So it's like yeah. that moment of him connecting with the sketch in such an intense way. And it's just a quick sketch by an artist versus the greatest works of art in the world in the Louvre that he connects with because he sees the effort, but he doesn't connect with because he doesn't see the humanity of like, he's not challenged by it because he doesn't connect with humanity anymore. I felt like that was also something being said with the art. Yeah. So I think you're, you're definitely touching on something that is integral to understanding sort of the final, some of the final messages of this book. Um, and that ties directly into the, actually the, the bit I was going to read. Um, it's, it's a, it's a longer paragraph, but I think it's worth it. So he says, but something had occurred to me there or rather something I had already been aware of merely became clearer. I had gone to the Louvre that night to lay down my soul, to find some transcendent pleasure that would obliterate pain and make me utterly forget even myself. I'd been upheld in this. As I stood on the sidewalk before the doors of the hotel waiting for the carriage that would take me to meet Armand, I saw the people who walked there, the restless boulevard crowd of well-dressed ladies and gentlemen, the hawkers of papers, the carriers of luggage, the drivers of carriages, all these in a new light. Before, all art had held for me the promise of a deeper understanding of, a, of the human heart. Now the human heart meant nothing. I did not denigrate it. I simply forgot it. The magnificent paintings of the Louvre were not, for me, intimately connected with the hands that had painted them. They were cut loose and dead like children turned to stone. Like Claudia, severed from her mother, preserved for decades in pearl and hammered gold, like Madeline's dolls. And of course, like Claudia and Madeline and myself, they could all be reduced to ashes. So, yeah, I thought that that section really spoke to what you were just talking about and and the connection of, of art with meaning and, I don't know, just like, it, it's, it's a really somber moment and I think reflects... Um, the mind of the writer at this time and feeling like, you know, kind of hopeless and disconnected and like almost nihilist in a way, like nothing matters here. 
um, and, and anything, it, it, also just how transient everything is, like how all of it can be reduced to ashes. Um, but there's something there too about like the tragedy of Louis being able to, unable to see the connection and he had been putting all of the, the weight on the art itself, but maybe the lesson there is that the, the important thing was the people who made it. Right. And the tragedy is he can no longer see the connection to those people. Exactly. Yeah. That what that is exactly what I was trying to get at. But you said it a lot more eloquently, <laughs> so I'm glad you read that and said that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I got helped by the book there. <laughs> um, it's 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 in the text. Um, and that's one of the lessons that I really like. You know, this this book it's it's surprising in that way, and it ends on these like kind of depressing notes, um, and not not the ways you might expect. I don't know what you expect from a book like this, but. Not I, I wasn't necessarily expecting this. Um, what about the boy at the end here and his his um, wanting of uh, to be? He's like after everything you you know. Louis says he's like, "Ooh, I want that." Yeah, it's um, the you ultimate. don't understand what that would mean to someone like me. He says to Louis, even though Louis is at the same time going like, "I failed. How how can you possibly exactly. want to be a vampire?" So we're again engaging with Louis lost his humanity. Right, he's convinced himself he's lost his humanity, but he's doing this interview in the hopes that he convinces people to listen to it and then not. Yeah. Want want to pursue something like this or or to sort of engage be active and engaged in their life don't be passive um and don't make the same mistakes that he did but this kid who he's giving the interview to the boy immediately turns around and is like i want that because there's this this like oxymoron of you want it until you have it and then you don't realize what you had before and it's this like yeah. you can't understand it until you're an immortal you can't understand why you being a mortal human is so special and it's this this like endless cycle of like people will always want this because they can never get the perspective until they don't have it yeah well also um i think the boy would argue and you know maybe i would argue as well that like if you're an immortal who you know is struggling with the nature of your existence you may have forgotten the tragedy of the brevity of a mortal life and you know when the boy says you don't know what that power mean would mean to someone like me and to us um i think it's true i think louis has forgotten what that could mean i mean it can Um, but then then once you become the immortal everything that's worth living life for like all you have left is your life and then unless you Mm -hmm. have other people to connect to like lestat or claudia then there's there is no reason you're by yourself in a world you know the loneliness that we talked about we also talked about it in the old guard like being alone in that existence would be would be I think the worst case scenario and, and like in a, yeah, in a perfect world you get you and all your loved ones to become immortals and you just live out that fantasy forever. But like, it's just like for whatever reason is never going to work out like that, you know? Well, in fiction, there's always catches, right? And one of the huge ones for vampires is that you, you become a mass murdering, you know, serial monster. killer, essentially yeah, exactly. a monster uh, who, who also can only experience only the night and not the day. Like there's so many prices paid for this. Um, which is what makes it interesting, right? Like, you know, and, and I don't know. I thought it was, I had, I, I personally had a lot of fun with this novel. I, I like that style. You know, as I just read it, there's some, there's a beauty to that style of writing, um, that I, that I enjoyed. I can see like getting tired of it and, and sometimes just wanting to know what happens. Um, but I don't know. I liked it. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, overall, like really, really glad that I've read this story now and, and, have this cultural context and and overall yeah just like to to get that sort of 
to put this in place with like vampire stories and monster stories and mm-hmm. what it's meant to society and how it's changed storytelling and because we've seen this sort of tortured immortal so many times now um, yeah and like to, I, I don't know like you said i don't know if it's the first case of it but it's a very popular version of it that's yeah that's she, she sort of established the archetype of the vampire that all other vampires are sort of compared to right like um i i saw an interview with her talking about uh the interviewer was asking her about twilight and um and true blood and it seemed like he was really hoping to like stir up some drama um you know between her and these authors but she's like a fan of them she's like yeah i like i like both of them you know twilight uh you know they they put vampires in high school she's like my vampires would have hated it but you know they created vampires that were, were okay with it and and you know made it appealing to that and then she said you know in um true blood you take vampires and you put them at the corner bar and you make them approachable in that way, and you make them like a you know small town Louisiana, and I can see that to me it seemed like she really liked well it's like a fan of True Blood, um, said that you know she she was you know Charling Harris she she was reading the books and, and and watching the show, and I I also like to see that where it's like you know like Stephen King loves horror you know what I mean like yeah. people who who like embody a genre in some way you like to see that they still love it right. like the passion's still there she they can still be excited by by these like variations on the things that they do. Right. Cause the opposite is what I hate to see is the competition that people feel like that they feel like the heat's on for them. Like they're, 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 they're getting, you know, there's some sort of competition, like which one's better and all this other stuff. And they're, they're the the interviewer was totally trying to get her to like talk some trash about these other authors and be like, you know, my mind's the best. And, you know, but she wasn't interested in doing that. I I like that. Props to her for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, very cool. Um, I'm going to be really excited to get into this movie now because, uh, I, I know that when I saw it, I had no idea what I was going to watch. And then I saw it a long time ago. And like, now I'm going in having read the book and I'm, I'm it's just going to be a completely different experience. And I'm going to be really interested to see what you think of it. Yeah, um, I'm excited. It's, it's a fun one. Um, so shout out to Jamie D again for commissioning this. Um, you know, it's really cool. Hopefully you're enjoying the coverage. If you wanted to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com slash ink to film and you can sign up there we have all kinds of bonus content. We have like 30 bonus episodes on there um, that you can, you can find if you, if you sign up um, lots of other tiers with different, different value. Yeah. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film. And we have the council of inklings on, on Facebook where you can sort of vote in polls you can engage with we post all sorts of news any sort of adaptation yeah. stuff that's coming out things we might cover in yeah. the future poppy war was just announced that so they're going to be making into a tv show i think so Very lots cool. of you know whenever i see some cutting cutting edge you know adaptation news i post it in there um if you like this episode actually let us know in the form of a rating review on whatever podcast app you use or if you're on youtube make sure to like the video comment let us know um we've been getting some some steam going on there this year um we really appreciate it. It helps get the word out. Yeah. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So we will be back next week with the film. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.